This is the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Ian Stasikevich, contributing writer for American Cinematographer. In this episode, we're headed south with Werner Herzog's Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, photographed by Peter Zeitlinger. Bad Lieutenant is the latest of more than 15 collaborations between Werner and Peter, starting with 1995's Death for Five Voices. I was curious to know how the two met, so when I recently sat down with Peter, it was the first question I asked. I met Werner when he was in Vienna, and I was just finishing my film studies. And uh, before I met him, I, I made three uh, movies for the cinema, feature films, and uh, one documentary. It was by Ulrich Seidel. That's actually how, how we met, was that, uh, you know, in, in Europe, actually in, in uh, Austria and Germany, the films are financed by the state. It's a kind of fund which is uh, financed by the taxes. And Ulrich Seidel, he made a very dark film and went into into the underground life of Vienna. And this fund didn't want to finance these films to the end because they said you can't uh, show something like this to the audience and you show just ugly people and uh, dirty places and and so Ulrich, the director, he phoned Werner. He knew that he is in Vienna at that time. And Werner showed up in the editing room and saw the film. The name of the documentary is Animal Love. It's an honest, unflinching look at codependent relationships between pets and their emotionally crippled owners. Werner loved it. And I I asked the best newspaper in in Austria to write an article uh, about this film and I wrote a, a, a very very fine review a, a raving review about the film and as a last sentence I said the real discovery in this film is is an unknown young cinematographer Peter Zeitlinger and Peter who read that uh, wrote me a letter and I said yeah maybe we'll get in business maybe in 10 years maybe <laughs> two weeks later so we were we were already doing the next film and he said he's got a project in Italy about um, Gesualdo, the composer. He was a very brutal killer. He killed his wife, and uh, he, but he was a prince. The film was Death for Five Voices. Since then, Werner and Peter have told the stories of all manner of misfits and obsessives. The U.S. Air Force pilot Dieter Dengler in Little Dieter Needs to Fly, bear-loving Timothy Treadwell in Grizzly Man, the blue-collar philosophers of Encounters at the End of the World, and now the corrupt but well-meaning fictional police lieutenant Terrence McDonough, played by Nicolas Cage in Bad Lieutenant. Well, I think uh, uh, this this character is, is part of a larger family <laughs> where he fits in perfectly. And, and I think um, if if you see the film for two minutes... Uh, you would, without knowing any, having any credits, you would immediately find out, or know this must have been uh, me who did the film. Some people are calling this a reimagining of Abel Ferrara's film of the same name. Others say it's the beginning of an anthology. Whatever you want to call it, Werner has taken the most sacred of crime genres, the film noir, and turned it into something all his own. I, I had the feeling that the film noir... Uh, always has its certain specific times of 
times of insecurity, times of financial collapse. So the famous uh, uh, writings, for example, Dashiell Hammett uh, and others, uh, was in a way a, a, a consequence of the big depression. And, and in a way, film noir has a fertile ground nowadays. It's you're, you're just connecting with uh, with a larger mood of of the times. For that reason, uh, and, and of course the collapse of civility, all all these things were were a very fascinating concoction to to go to New Orleans. Originally, the screenplay was written for New York, and and then all of a sudden the. The main producer, Avi Lerner, approached me and he said, well, couldn't we, and, and he was very apologetic, couldn't we put it, move it to New Orleans because the tax incentives are so high there. And I said, well, it can't get any better. That's why I would rather like to shoot the film. And at the same time, Nicolas Cage wanted it to be moved to New Orleans, but for entirely different reasons. It was a, a, a place where where he feels the fluidity uh, of a city and the the music and 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 I'm sure it and he talks about it. It it somehow influenced his his way he's uh, floating and through through the film and, and the fluidity, the musicality of the performance is, is influenced by the city. For those of you who are expecting a familiar New Orleans, the filmmakers are more than happy to disappoint. Taking advantage of a garbage-strewn post-Katrina landscape, they present us with a city where all civility and recognizability have been washed away. And then, of course, uh, avoid all the uh, pictorial, pic-pittoresque cliches of New Orleans. I said we are not going to go for... French Quarter. We are not going to go into a jazz club. We are not going to shoot Mardi Gras. We are not doing uh, a voodoo ceremony and, and things like that. So that was a no-no. We tried to show the, the dirty, the dark, where the life and crime happens. It was a crime story. So those those parts of New Orleans. And sometimes we shot in in areas where the production told us don't go away from the group because that's already dangerous area when you when you're alone you will be robbed or even killed or whatever so, so it was it, it those were real places where we where we worked the, Toby Corbett he was the production designer and he he created things very great things the most of the look of the film is um yeah, it's, it's what, what we created together before the actors and before even Werner uh, showed up. They brought um, cars there which were burnt out and they they brought rotten carpets there and they painted the walls before we came there and made them old and rotten. And so so when we came there, it was real. And this is, this is how Werner feels we're comfortable with. He wants to be in a real world. Now, a lot has been said about the look of the film, or rather, that Bad Lieutenant doesn't seem to have a definable look. According to the cinematographer, that's the whole point. When you use a lot of atmosphere or film light, which you really see as a film light, he hates it. He, he wants either that it's just a, just a stupid bulb somewhere, or a stupid lamp where you see it is a lamp, uh, but but not to imitate 
uh, you know, imitated film light he, he hates. Uh, he, it's, he, he immediately turns it off. I'm, I'm always battling for, for not aiming at aesthetics. Aesthetics come in by itself. And they always, all my films have very strong aesthetics. How it comes into the film, I don't even know. But, but the moment we are still trying to start organizing it, it, it would become immediately some sort of, of artsy and unbearable. Most viewers would be hard-pressed to find anything artsy and unbearable about Bad Lieutenant with its underexposed interiors and sun-bleached exteriors. But Peter suggests its lack of stylization is actually a style in and of itself. I created the expression, instead of film noir, the film blanc. Uh, which which tells what it means. It's uh, it's white film. It's bright optically, but not concerning the contents. The contents was the story was a dark story about the dark character. Actually, to create this, you need much more light than than to create film lighting because um, natural light is always much stronger, much softer, much. Um, is always coming from outside or from the sources which are naturally there. So it's uh, more complicated to create. Um, and it depends also on the crew. We had a very great uh, Paul Olinde was his name, uh, the gaffer, very great crew. And they also understood that, that they have to pre-light pre everything before uh, the crew comes so so we, we we made all the concept of lighting which was uh, basically to recreate natural light and to be able to film inside and outside of the houses at the same stop uh, which means big light sources and big soft sources and and when we came there it was already ready to shoot so we just made a little corrections even between the rehearsals Th there was no concept of like special contrast you are not it was by nature because when you're inside and looking outside then is a big contrast if a person is at the window there's a big contrast between the light from outside and the light from inside so it was nothing to create uh, on purpose it was it was just there the impression one gets is that when Werner and Peter are on set, they're actually not on a set making a movie about fictional characters and a fictional story. They're documenting an alternate reality where the conventional rules of narrative filmmaking don't apply. The most stylized scene in the whole film takes place at the home of Big Fate, a New Orleans drug lord in league with McDonough. Some hired thugs show up to collect on a debt owed by the lieutenant, but the confrontation quickly escalates into a big Hollywood-style shootout. It's shot in such a funny way and with slow motion and with a funny music. But um, but to to, sh to shoot in slow motions with uh, three or how many, two or three cameras, um, which is a maximum because Werner always gets nervous when there is more than one camera. Uh, but in this case, he knew that it's it's necessary for the for this coverage and this vis visualization. And the the cameras were shaking. Uh, and at the end, when when there was this break dancer who was the still living soul, um, was supposed an iguana should come into frame. But it was almost he, 
iguana didn't want to go into the light. So I don't know, somebody pushed him there or whatever. And, and, he, and then when you think the scene is over, suddenly the iguana comes, comes into the frame. And, and as you see, it was a very uh, small depth of field. This scene gets so great because of this. I mean, and of course the acting of, of Niklas, which is hilarious. By treating the fantasy scenes the same as he would any other, the line between what is real and what isn't is blurred. I mean, are those iguanas really there? Is that guy's soul really breakdancing? This breakdancer was really there, and this guy was really uh, dancing, and he was not covered with smoke or with any filters or with any no special effects. So, of course, the fantasy is without limits. I guess that's the only manner it works. Uh, whatever you would do would be kitschy or not right for this. And and there are also some moments when they are standing after this shootout and there was already somebody called Cut, it was not Werner. Mm -hmm. And the cameras kept rolling and the actors kept acting. And there, there are the, those hilarious moments of, of the faces which are after this. And so, so sometimes this happens that we just keep on the camera and, and get moments which are not staged. Werner acknowledges and appreciates Peter's cinematographic instinct. It's one of the reasons the two filmmakers have continued to collaborate on project after project. Uh, we are shooting a scene and he turns off the camera. Well, let's say it was on his shoulders. He, he just takes the camera down and he says, Werner, this doesn't work. This scene has no rhythm. It's the first time ever a cinematographer tells me rightly so, yes, this doesn't have a flow, it doesn't have a rhythm, there's something wrong. And we resettle quickly and all of a sudden it flows and it has a rhythm. You do not delegate the essential things like a rhythm of a film into the editing. You can only do something mechanical. You can, you can as, as in music, you would say the metron, the, 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 the chopping of, of, of the things. But still a film has to have some, some sort of an inner dimension, an inner flow, a flow that somehow connects with an audience. And that you cannot establish in, in editing, period. And who, whoever does not understand that should not make films. So how does Werner make his films? Well, the first thing when I arrive on a set and I know what the scene basically is going to be about, but I'm completely and utterly unprepared. And I do not want the cinematographer to be prepared either. So we, we walk on the set, we, we try to figure out where will we place the persons, how would we move the camera, how would it look like. So it's, it's very, very fresh, very, very demanding because you have to, to find solutions very quickly and it's demanding like that. Uh, and uh, but much more lively than than a preconditioned array of shoots. Uh, sometimes a cinematographer would ask me, how many shots do we do for this sequence? I say, how do, do I know? Let's run it as long as possible and weave in and out. Uh, maybe uh, one thing is sure, it will take at least one shot. <laughs> maybe it, it ends up in, in being cut down in, in five different shots. Let's work into it. We'll find out. And of course, no, no storyboards. Uh, that's the, the ultimate instrument of the cowards, of those who, who do not trust in imagination while they are on the set. 
and and I do not allow viewfinders. Uh, you, as a cinematographer, you better know the projection lines of uh, of your lenses. When I have a 32 millimeter lens, I know exactly two persons sitting across the table, uh, not completely in frame because I have to step half a foot further back and then both of and I don't have to look through the camera. I don't need to look through a viewfinder. I don't want a cinematographer to to use a viewfinder. You better know your your lenses. Actually, when I read the script, I I get a little idea about how the actors could move in in the space which which we are filming. So I try to to hide equipment which is needed because you need, of course, light to for 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 the exposure. Hide it um, somewhere where where I'm sure that this will never come in frame, even when we move around. In general speaking, is is um, you have to to think ahead of everything and and prepare. There's there's almost never a chance to change it. So then then everything the tension and runner uh, directs in a very concentrated way. So it's all the time a closed set. So um, whenever makeup wants to come in and and uh, like make somebody ready to shoot, he he says no 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 makeup no makeup everything fine. And 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 it's true in 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 terms of keeping the concentration and keeping the the actors in in the character, and not not getting them disturbed and with you know with uh, all the things going around. Werner may have found his next Kinski in Nicolas Cage, who shuffles, slurs, and menaces his way through the Big Easy. Val Kilmer, Ava Mendes, Brad Dorif. Jennifer Coolidge and rapper Exhibit round out the colorful cast of corrupt cops, hookers, bookies, alcoholics, and hardened criminals. Uh, the camera work is based on the actors' work, which demands experienced actors, which we had. You don't create the camera for the point where the camera is, but you choose the right point of the camera to that what is already there. So this makes things much faster. This is like everybody who, who is used to normal, let's say, normal filmmaking. Uh, they they are surprised how fast we can we can achieve this result because it's it's you know usually when you've got a reflex somewhere which you don't like, then uh, a crew of grip people come to the set and build up a lot of stands and a lot of gobo arms and, and, and flags and, and uh, try to fight this reflex. But if you, if you move the camera just two inches to the left or to the right, this reflex might be gone. So that's the way how we do it. We just try to, to make a quick solution. About halfway through our conversation, Peter and I were joined by first assistant cameraman Eric Solner. Eric and Peter started working together on Ulrich Seidel's 1994 film, The Last Real Man, and have continued to do so on nearly every film project since then. Eric's first job working with Werner and Peter was as a camera assistant on the documentary Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Uh, 15 years ago on the first show with Werner, it was very strange. Now I'm used to it after 10 or 10 features. He always tells me, Eric, we shoot a rehearsal. If it's not fine... We do it again, so we do it again, and second, third, sixth time, it's on focus. And then you go to the cinema, and then you see 
No, most of the time it is the first time in focus. <laughs> yeah, but and so it's still a rehearsal. And if Werner shoots very long scenes, so even if it's edit afterwards, he shoot the whole plot in one five minutes, six minutes, a thousand foot shot rolls out, and then at the end he, he tells me, yeah, I took the rehearsal. It looked better to me from the actors, and yeah, I know it's a little bit soft because it was the rehearsal for sure, but don't. Be sorry about this, Eric. It's just, I know it was the rehearsal. So it's a little bit strange for me to see it in the cinema like this and say, oh, it's soft because it was really a rehearsal and we had no proper positions. But he likes it because it was acted more natural and I'm living with this now for years. Yeah, and most of the time he's right. He takes the best best take for the audience and no audience is interested in focus. <laughs> That's... These are just the cinematographers and, and camera assistants. He's definitely interested what's in frame and how the actors were and for and him story. The, and the, the story. The main thing is the story. He doesn't care about the technical background of, of how the story is told. And and, and yeah and, and, and it works. A typical scene who describes how Werner works. We run a process trailer and shooting a, one of these car driving scenes and uh, then suddenly we're on a highway driving 50 miles per hour, 60 miles per hour and it started raining because it was uh, hurricane season. So it was really a heavy rain and we were not prepared and everybody from the American crews thought now we would stop. But Nicolas Cage just turned the, the wipers on. So it was for Werner, it was still a good frame and if they imagine three, no two, very expensive movie camps with no rain cover in a hurricane rainstorm, a completely stressed American crew looking at all this. It's an absolute nightmare and a happy director because it's a marvelous shot and the, the actor acts with the rain and everything works nice. And it didn't fit to the other driving scene, so we didn't use it, but it was typical for Werner how he works. He was just focused on the image he sees and How we do it, it's our business. The relationship between the director and the camera department is very close, even down to the point where Werner slates each take. He wants to be the last one between the actors and the camera, but that's just one aspect of Werner's unique approach. The big difference if in an American set, the director shows up, you hear 10 ADs, walkies, director on set, director on set. On the set of Werner Herzog, you realize Werner is on set because it gets quiet immediately. <laughs> Yeah, it's a big difference. It's nobody screams, direct this here, it's just getting very silent. So it's a very peaceful place, but you need actually need a, a bigger crew which is overqualified that everybody knows what to do because I'm just on set. Yeah, I don't go to a truck, I'm just on set. Werner does not want to talk to other ACs, just one person. So whatever you prepare has to be done ahead, yeah, has to be prepared around the corner. Not in his frame, because he wants to have a very silent set. If you drop a needle, you hear it. And if somebody speaks, chatters private things next to his set, this guy is not fired, but he will stay at the, at the base camp for the rest of the show, next to the coffee machine. Yeah? He's not fired, but if you have to tell something private, do it there for the next three weeks. At a couple different points in the film, Werner even takes control of a digital camcorder to get up close and personal with a few of his reptilian subjects. In one scene, the camera follows an alligator as it creeps through the grass along a highway. The other moment has been talked about quite a bit in the press, but 
no one describes it quite as well as the director himself. In, in the film, you have some completely demented iguanas, which I shot, my, I shot them myself with a tiny little camera and a fiber optics cable connecting to a deck and, and only millimeters away from the eyes of, of the iguana. So uh, I knew it had to be a very special, visual, different aspect of it, something that exists only a, in, in a demented fantasy of somebody under drugs. Uh, so, so sometimes I, I, in very rare occasions, I, I grab a camera myself and, and get busy. It's the most hilarious film you can you can see in years, I guess. Or at least it's it's the the way it connects to audiences, and that's wonderful to see. And and the more vile and the more debased uh, the bad lieutenant gets, the more hilarious it becomes. Werner is a very great personality, and he, I think, he he brings his personality in everything. So also in a cup drama, and he turned it to something very special. And it's not just a cup drama, and that's yeah, that's why he's great, and why he's got his fantasy, and why he always demands to this fantasy to be filmed in in this way it's 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 obviously the only way how how it how it can be created bad lieutenant port of call new orleans was photographed in the 185 aspect ratio the film format is 4 perf super 35 kodak vision 2 5201 50d vision 2 5205 250d and vision 3 5219 500t Cinematographer Peter Zeitlinger used Cook Prime lenses, Optimo Zoom lenses, and MovieCam bodies. The digital intermediate was performed at Hollywood Intermediate in Hollywood, California, supervised by colorist Julius Freed. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts and interviews by going to the ASC website at www.theasc.com.